Welcome to the U.S. Fire Journal Podcast. We offer views and opinions on the fire service around the world with no topic too tough to handle. Visit us at usfirejournal.com for all your fire service information. Now, here's your host, Jay. Good morning. Welcome into the podcast. Today is November the 1st. It's 2021. And lots to talk about. It's been a few minutes since the last podcast. And since the last podcast, I should say, I've been out of town twice. I uh, went to the coast and, and had a good time. And then also went back close to my old stomping grounds. Uh, the, the podcast is going to relocate, or I'm going to relocate, which means that, of course, the podcast will be coming from somewhere else. Uh, but still be the podcast, still be writing, still be doing the things that I do, just doing it from a different location. Today I want to start off talking about what's going on in New York City. Uh, the vaccine mandate, Mayor Bill de Blasio, or de Lausio, however you want to say it, has, uh, among other things, uh, mandated that uh, employees in, in New York City must be vaccinated. And of course, uh, some people are fine with that, others aren't. In many ways, it, it mirrors our national debate over uh, the COVID vaccine and vaccinations in general. And look, I'm not going to get into the national debate. I'm not going to get into the politics surrounding the debate since most people have taken a, quote, political, end quote, position on the vaccine. Um I'm just going to talk about the impact of firefighters who've not had the vaccine um, not being at work and the impact it has on public safety, specifically fire and EMS in New York City, and it definitely has an impact. Uh, fire stations have, have uh, been shuttered. Um, I, think, I think on Friday there were uh, a large number of firefighters that, that uh, reported in sick, uh, the fire commissioner is irate over that. And uh, what it all boils down to, if we can just set aside politics and just talk about public safety, is that it has had a demonstrable effect on the delivery of services in New York, where people are used to getting top-notch service call after call. Um, I have heard, I've not been able to independently confirm it, so I'm just throwing this out there and given that caveat that there's already been a fatality, uh, civilian fatality that at least some firefighters are saying has, has been directly impacted by uh, station closures due to, I guess, firefighters, uh, uh, you know, not wanting to get the vaccine mandate, or excuse me, not wanting to get the vaccine. And it really depends on which side of the coin you're on. Uh, my concern, of course, is for civilians and firefighters. Without stations, New York City runs a very tight fire department. Um, no matter where you go in the five boroughs, no matter what company you report to, you have a very specific assignment. And because of that, the interoperability among New York is almost second to none. Um, you know, your arrival, uh, the time to the fire... They have been doing this for a very long time, and they've been doing a lot of it for a very long time. So it is important that, that 
they are arriving in the order in which uh, they are used to arriving, that they are able to implement uh, uh, firefighting operations at the time in which they do because um, they have really refined it down to what for them works extraordinarily well. And so anytime you, you shut down a company or two companies or three companies or whatever it's going to be, it definitely has an impact for residents, not only in that immediate area, but in the surrounding areas. We all know what happens when you brown out a company. Politicians are quick to say, well, we have others in other areas. They'll be there in no time. That's not the way it works, though, is it? Because as soon as you're pulling one from that area, guess what happens? There's a call in that area. Now you have a delayed response in that particular area. There's a reason why if you have, let's say you have 100 fire stations, there's a reason why you need 100 and not 97. That's the way it goes. So when you close or brown out or, or whatever, when you, when you do that with fire stations, it not only impacts that area, it impacts the area surrounding it. Um, it's, it's rare in, in this world where you find a department that just has too many stations. Some arguments can be made, certainly, but by and large, cities do not spend luxuriously on fire protection. Therefore, each station... Uh, has a has a zone of responsibility, and it's important to keep that station occupied. And so, in New York, what you're having now is uh, more danger for civilians and more danger for firefighters. And again, I'm not getting into the politics of vaccines simply because I'm sick of it. I think most people are, except for for extremists on, on, on either side and third and fourth sides as well. Um, I just believe that there has to be some sort of resolution so that firefighters and civilians are, are again, protected. And that goes for anywhere, specifically today, though I'm talking about the FDNY. Uh, Bill de Blasio is, is uh, you know, he is who he is. Uh, he's not going to change. And uh, the FDNY knows what it needs to do to protect its citizens. And so there has to be some sort of meeting there that, that allows for uh, fire protection to, uh, to get back to its normal level. I really, and this isn't just FDNY, anywhere, when you shut down a fire station, even for a day, people will go, yeah, let's say you shut down a fire station that hardly gets any calls. People say, well, yeah, it's no big deal. You know, we've, we've got other units. But you have a station there, so why did you put it there? Did you lie before and say you needed it? Or did you really need it and you're lying now saying we've got it covered? You know, it doesn't work both ways. And so when you close a station or brown out a station or you don't have the personnel for that particular station, even if it's a slow station, doesn't matter, you're taking a huge risk. And the people who pay the price for that are civilians and firefighters. And that's unfortunate. And so if that kind of thing is going on, it's incumbent uh, on everyone to, to fight it. You can't have this going on. It creates situations that, that departments, if, if it hits wrong, departments and individuals don't recover from it very well. 
so let's keep these stations in working order. Let's keep, or excuse me, let's keep these stations fully open so that they can uh, do the work that's necessary to protect the citizens in, in their areas. To the FDNY, good luck. You know, here's what you know about New York firefighters. They're going to pull through. They always do. But uh, it's just another another big speed bump that's been thrown in the way. And fires and emergencies, they create their own uh, problems. You don't need to be externally adding to them. And uh, I really believe, no matter how you come down on this, that at some point this will make de Blasio look like the clown that he really is. And uh, thankfully he'll be gone soon. And, you know, they can elect a warm fish uh, from Staten Island who would who would probably make better decisions. Got a couple of rants I want to do today. And the first rant is on this. I, I hear brotherhood and sisterhood all the time. Um, and I like hearing it. You know, the fire service, brothers and sisters, and, and all it, it is. It's, it's, it's legitimate. It's real. Um, and I have been afforded uh, great respect and enjoy being a part of that. And uh, wherever I go, I'm always treated well. I've never been treated poorly anywhere I've ever gone. Uh, but here's something I don't like. Don't talk about the brotherhood or sisterhood. Don't talk about it. And then stab other firefighters in the back on the routine. Now, what do I mean by that? Talking is one thing. Going out and trying to wreck someone is a different thing. The only exception to that is someone who's a danger to others and themselves. But that's a different story. Here's what I know. Um, I started hanging around fire stations when I was two or three. And no, that doesn't make me a 90-year veteran. Uh, but, you know, my brother was in the... I, I hung out at the fire station before my brother became a firefighter. When he became a firefighter, it was just natural for me to hang out. I became... Uh, the little, you know, the guy who ran to the store for everybody, uh, either walking or on his bike, all that kind of stuff. And back in the day, even when I became a firefighter, if you had a beef with someone or if someone treated you poorly or if somebody, you know, ran their mouth a little to the chiefs, typically you could take it out in the backyard. And that's not just a saying. You did. And you Maybe getting each other's faces, you know, laying on of hands. And uh, pretty soon it was solved. And, you know, you win some, you lose some. But ultimately, it, it created this sort of uh, this brotherhood that allowed for discipline to take place uh, within the ranks. Now, I'm not advocating that now because with, with people now... Somebody would, you know, probably get a minor little cut in their finger, and of course you'd be in court, and then everybody would be sentenced to a life in Siberia. So I'm not advocating that. What I'm saying is, is that if you truly want to be a part of something that, that is, is good, um, you have to talk to the people who don't understand that. We used to call them brown nosers, boot licks, ass kissers, um, you know, all sorts of things. And I'm sure people still call them that now. In fact, I know they do. But I can't think of anything worse uh, 
within the, the realm of the brotherhood, as it were, then people taking something and taking it to someone else in the hopes that, that people will, will hurt, uh, hurt firefighters. Some people say, well, no, it's me. I'm, gosh darn it, I'm trying to start something professional. If you're trying to start something professional, be professional. If you have people who aren't doing their jobs, guess whose fault it is? Yours. And that's the way it's always been. And I learned that early in the military. It's been reinforced everything I've ever done. You know, if you feel like somebody's not doing it, then go to them. Pull them aside and say, hey, we got to fix this. If they don't, then you take further action. And that's the way it goes. What I find disgusting is drama. You know, look, every place has its own drama. But I can tell you this. When the drama is constant, you're not working at a fire department. You're on the set of a soap opera. And each and every day, you have, there's a brand new story that's just going to decimate everything. And I'll, I'll tell you two things about that particular environment. Number one, it's not a fire department. It's not, period. People have way too much time on their hands if they're dealing with that. Number two, morale is dead. Every, every department has its own little cliques and people who like to hang out with each other. Perhaps we shouldn't even call them cliques. It's just the way it is. But in a place where there's a lot of drama, the morale is crap. And typically, in fact, almost always, that goes back to leadership. You know, look at the city of Houston. The mayor of the city of Houston. A poor leader. Very poor leader. It's reflected. Uh, everywhere. So, you know, and some people think, and this is one of my favorites, they're like, you know what? I don't like negative thinking. Really? Wow, you're in for a long life. You're always going to have it. You cannot legislate out negative thinking or talking. It's simply impossible. There's only one way to uh, fix things morale-wise. And that's to lead, not manage. Lead. Managers love setting up little rules. Like, right? well, according to Rule 100, subsection 2, you know, that, that's what managers do. You don't manage people. You don't. You lead them. I've seen too many managers who try to say, oh, well, according to my reporting system over here, we have an infraction. You know, these people were the ones who got fragged in Vietnam. You know, they were. Uh, their own, they didn't have to worry about anyone else killing them. Their own people wanted to. The same goes in the fire service, not necessarily the killing, but the same goes in the fire service. You know, if you want to increase morale, then set some standards and stick to them. Don't arbitrarily change standards. Not only is it illegal, not only is it unethical, but it's liable to get you involved in a lawsuit that nobody wants. Because when a lawsuit is filed, lots of things tend to come out. We see it all over. A lawsuit takes a mind of its own. It really does. You don't chart that course. When things start coming out, they start getting ugly. When they get ugly, all bets are off. 
And that's speaking from someone who has vast experience with those things. Okay, I've, um, I've been involved in a lot of these things as an advocate for firefighter, as a firefighter. Um, I mean, the bottom line is uh, you have to avoid it. And the way you avoid it is leadership, doing the job. Now, let me talk about the other side of this. And it's important, too, as important. As firefighters, you got to do your job every day. Not once a month, not once a week, not one shift out of five. You know, you have to do it every day. And it, it, there was a, there's a chief uh, officer who retired uh, from the FDNY. I used to see him out on Sullivan's Island. That's in South Carolina. It's a nice little beach community, beautiful little area. And uh, he had retired down, and, and he was out there, and I was young then, fairly young. And, uh, you know, he said his biggest secret was every day he came to work, he did his job. He said, they might get me in a lot of things. They will never, ever get me on not doing my job. That had an impression on me because here was somebody who had spent 30-plus years in a busy department, including during the war years, in New York, and his whole thing was not about what other people were doing or not doing, but what he himself had to do. And uh, uh, now he wasn't the fire chief; he was a chief officer. But uh, and he was somebody I enjoyed talking to, uh, simply because of his perspective. His perspective was basically: in order to fix the world, I have to fix myself. In order to say, you know what? I want everybody to do A, B, C, D. I, too, have to do A, B, C, D, and then E. This is what a lot of leaders don't get. Uh, This is what especially a lot of leaders, the little dictator leaders, you know, they've probably been in the Cornhole Fire Department and Ipsawachi, wherever, and uh, gosh darn it, they've been in the fire service for 20 years, 20 years, 20, you know, and it's these clowns, really. Everybody laughs at them. They don't realize it, but everybody laughs at them because uh, they get into a little position of power and they feel like they have to do something. You know, they don't think, what can I do to make things better? They're like, I have to do something. I have to create something. I have to make a difference, which, of course, is the worst possible way to start off. The attitude can be correct. But when you become a company officer, the first thing you have to do is learn. If, as you move up and you become a battalion chief, district chief, so on and so forth, the first question you always have to ask is, what do I need to do? Then, if you're doing what you need to do, it's a lot easier because everybody sees it. And so, it's easy. It is. It's easy to talk about this brotherhood. It, it's easy to throw it out. But I've had it. You've had it, I'm sure. Somebody who's constantly throwing up the brotherhood and the fire service, and it's for the good of the department. And you watch them, and the first thing they're doing, they throw everyone under the bus. And I'm not just talking about talking. Everybody talks about people. Most people talk about people. It's what we do. And whether we like it or not, it's what happens. That's not a big deal. But when those words become actions and those actions are unethical, then you have a huge problem. Then people start putting together things. That's when you can have bad days, 
bad weeks, bad months. And sometimes the people who start it, when it comes back around and it slams them in the face, they're shocked. They can't believe it. They didn't see it coming. And there's a reason. There are people who are far more practiced, who've seen it before, seen it a hundred times. And when it comes back around, they make sure it hits that person. In part, because that person has done something that runs contrary to any sort of brotherhood or sisterhood or anything. It's not professional. It's amateur hour. And you have to ask yourself the following question. Is it worth it? I try to tell young guys, stay away from the drama. Don't get involved. Just stay as far away as you can. Because when you get involved in the daily drama, it saps you of your professionalism. It's very difficult to maintain that attitude of, you know what, I got to do my job today and it's what I'm going to do. It saps you of it. And so, avoid it as much as possible. That's what you have to do. But at all times, at all times, do your job. And remember, most people don't get to set what they do as their job. Doing your job means doing it the way it's supposed to be done every single day with no deviation. And that's hard sometimes, but that's the difference between a pro and an amateur doing it. And then the difference between good leaders and little shitheads is that good leaders know they're leading people and they know they can't pull the wool. They can't. You can't continually lie to your people and expect them not to notice. It's really, it's, it's, it's leadership fraud. And fraud is a big subject, right? Fraud is a huge subject. We see it quite a bit from little equipment deals to promotions to trying to trick people. We see it quite a bit. And, uh, you know, the great news is 98% of the departments out there don't deal with it at all because they don't even think about it because they don't have to. You know, they don't. But there's always that 2%. And fraud in leadership, fraud with respect to funds, trying to trick people, you know, just doesn't work often. And it shouldn't. And uh, the same goes for rank and file as well. You know, when you show up to work, if you're just going to sit around all day, when the hammer comes, don't say anything. I mean, that's the way it goes. And uh, that's something you have to fight against. You have to do your job. At the same time, while you're doing your job, you have to expect that the leaders are leading. And if they're not, time for new leaders. Typically, that's what happens. And where there's a lot of drama, you know it's coming. And, and the new leadership will come eventually. And it'll probably be wholesale leadership change. And there's a lot of negativity that can go along with that as well. But you have to ask yourself, want to be pros? Want to be amateurs? There's your answer. Whatever you say, there's your answer. I want to talk today about... Uh, also about tillers, TDAs, tractor-drawn aerials. They are 
increasing in popularity around the country. And uh, for, for larger departments that have had them in service for a long time, even for small departments that have had uh, tillers for a very long time, um, it's good to see. They're, they're, they're good trucks. They really are now, depending on them, what you buy. But, but as a function, they're good trucks. Lots of storage space. Um, you can get them into places that, that uh, other trucks won't. Uh, what I would guard against is fad buying. You know, just because your department needs an aerial device doesn't, n- doesn't mean that it necessarily needs a tiller. It might. Tight streets, um, places where you need to get into, and let's face it, they squeeze houses in. Uh, even in the suburbs, they're squeezing houses into smaller and smaller areas. You know, if it's if, like put a thousand houses on one acre, you know, it's what it seems like. And so, yeah, tiller trucks have their place. And again, a lot of larger departments use them, use them effectively. Uh, so do smaller departments that have a history with them. But here's the thing. A tiller's not like every other aerial truck. Any more than, than a mid-mount's the same as a rear mount. Uh, in general, we think of them all as, as aerial trucks or aerial devices, and that's fine, but they do have their own peculiarities. And this is what I want to say. If you're thinking about a TDA, right, a tiller, do yourself a favor and reach out to departments, and that's plural, reach out to departments that use them, and use them on a frequent basis, and ask the basic questions, you know, what do you like best about it, where are some of its weaker areas, um, you know, and then the models, obviously, makes and models, you know. Has this company treated you well? What's the maintenance been like? All these sorts of things. Instead of just going with your favorite salesman. And, and that's fine. Some people have great salesmen who really know the fire service. And then some people just have sell, salesmen. And they'll sell you anything that they like. The salesman's not there fighting fire with you in most cases. Now, certainly if they're selling to you, I hope they're not. Um, that's its own issues. But, Yeah. Ask about it before you go out and do it. Um, ask departments that have been using them. Ask departments that have recently transitioned. Hey, what were some of the things you learned? There's no shame in the game of asking questions, and it's free. Most places can't wait to talk about their device, no matter what it is. You're thinking about, you know, your first, uh, uh, your first custom pumper. Talk to people who have them. You know, it's great. And don't get me wrong. You want to talk to salesmen. Obviously, they need love, too. But, you know, you're trying to get information. So take what the salesman says and go great and then check it out. Uh, Trust, but verify. Right. It makes sense. That's going to do it today. We'll be back tomorrow uh, with another edition of the U.S. Fire Journal podcast and stay safe.